Mollusca. Placozoa. Hello and welcome to Animalia, the podcast all about animals. And the weird and interesting things they do. I'm Farley. I'm Annie. And today we're talking about de-extinction. Can we bring animals back from the dead? Back from the grave. And with us we have... Dr. Axel Newton, researcher at the University of Melbourne. As part of his research, Axel is interested in how animals that aren't closely related to each other evolve similar traits. Like wings, for example. Birds and bats both evolved wings independently. For your PhD, you looked at Tasmanian tigers. Can you tell us a bit about that? I did, I did. So as part of my PhD, I was part of a a project looking at sort of convergent evolution of the extinct Tasmanian tiger with other large carnivores such as dogs and wolves. Uh, Convergent evolution is a phenomenon where two independently evolving species develop similar characteristics in response to a similar environmental niche. Um, The interesting thing about these two groups of animals is they last shared a common ancestor 160 million years ago. So this is actually back when the dinosaurs were running around. Yet independently, they've evolved striking similarities in their body shape and their skull. So what we're really interested in is looking in their DNA and trying to determine what sort of genetic regions are driving the similarities that we can see. That's really cool. It's very cool. Yeah. So how do you go about studying something like that? So that's a very good question because... front and center it's extinct so (laughs) that makes our job very very difficult so the tasmanian tiger um, became extinct about um, 80 odd years ago it uh, used to live in exclusively in tasmania but was hunted to extinction um, through a bounty scheme and the last confirmed individual uh, died in captivity in the 20s in hobart zoo can you describe for, say, especially American listeners or inter- international listeners, what actually is a Tasmanian tiger? Tasmanian tiger, it was a marsupial. So the thing, the, the most striking feature about it was it had a pouch like a kangaroo or a koala did. But when you actually look at it superficially, it looked a lot like a dog. So it ran on all fours. It had a, a long, stiff tail, big, sharp, pointy teeth. It was a carnivore. It took down prey. And it really did share a lot of similarities with the dingo, superficially with the dingo and Australian canine and otherwise um, large wolves and to a lesser extent foxes. I've seen footage of that last Tasmanian tiger in captivity too. It's such a strange thing being able to see a video of the last ever animal of a species. It is. It's it's sort of... You know, the fact that we have this footage, it's kind of somewhat bittersweet. You know, it's, it's amazing to see this thing that was once truly alive and, and roaming around sort of firsthand, but it's also tragic because you're like, that was genuinely sort of the last one of its kind. And, yeah. you know, extinctions happen. It's, it's a part of life. They come and they go. But the worst part about this was the fact that it was human driven. So... You know, our ancestors specifically went out of their way to wipe this thing off the, the face of the earth. So that that really strikes a nerve. That's, you know, we should be better than that. Um, and there are just huge ramifications. But when you see this footage, you know, it's just, it's remarkable. Yeah. Can you describe to why people wanted to get rid of this animal? Right. So it was actually sort of um, a bit of propaganda, if you will. So when early colonizers moved to uh, Tasmania, they brought a lot of livestock with them. So, you know, sheep and things like that. And because this was a large predator, um, there are no foxes or or dingoes or anything in Tasmania either. So you have this large predator and they were falsely accused of taking down the sheep, the livestock. And for that reason, this government bounty was placed on their heads. So falsely accused as well. Falsely accused. So there have actually been some studies where they've looked at um, skulls of Tasmanian tigers against wolves and other sort of carnivores. And what they can do is they can model what their prey preferences would have been. And it's very, very um, intricate and and complex sort of modeling. But what they found is that the Tasmanian tiger, its skull was just not set up to take down big prey. It was actually more likely to take down sort of smaller things, maybe like chickens or birds or rabbits and that sort of thing. But it wasn't actually equipped um, with the ability to take down these sheep. So the fact that it was 
persecuted for something it didn't do is even more saddening because yeah, yeah again this was a, a, a so unique species there's nothing that even came close and yeah we got rid of it well that's the weird that's the eerie thing to me about seeing the video is because it looks so unique looking because when mm. we think about all the other videos of extinct animals we have it's like oh like a, a rhino it's like but i can there's two other species of rhino or right. there's elephants but it's like oh i've seen other species of elephant but this was a species that's like oh I, that that looks weird it's like yeah. just it's so unique looking that it's not like seeing you know or like carolina parrot or parakeet or the uh passenger pigeon all those things that went extinct within our you know for the last 80 to 100 years all of them look like other things, but the thing was so unique. Right. I guess the other exception would be the dodo. That was a, obviously a, yeah. a bird, but quite a, a unique yeah. one. But it, it's absolutely true because when you look at the Tasmanian tiger, its closest living ancestors are the Tasmanian devil, which also lives in Tasmania. But that's about half, if not a third of the size. And then otherwise you have quolls and they're tiny. They're, you know, the size of a, a small cat. So this thing um, was truly unique truly unique but again people sort of don't realize that again it was a marsupial it had a pouch it gave birth to really underdeveloped young which went into the mum's pouch and did the, like continued the rest of their development through that way so it truly truly was a, a, a unique remarkable species and um, we heard last night that it also had a different pouch the males also had a pouch for protecting some other thing. They did. Is that true? It is true. So actually there are only two marsupial male, uh, male um, marsupial species that have pouches. One of which was the Tasmanian tiger. It had a pouch scrotum, if you will. And then the other is the water opossum. And uh, that sort of makes sense because if you're swimming around in, well, there, firstly, there really are no aquatic marsupials, but this one semi-aquatic one does have a pouch, but other than that, yeah, this guy, this guy had it. So we actually have some pouch scrotum tissue in the lab, and there are some people that are <laughs> very interested in that, but not not for me. So a pouch <laughs> for a pouch, pretty much. Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so you now explain the animal you study, but how do you actually go about researching it? Right, that's a very good question. It's extinct. That poses a huge limitation. However. With recent uh, advances in science and technology, we are now able to actually look at the DNA of this animal um, through DNA sequencing. So even though there are none of these animals left in the wild or in captivity, there are lots of really well-preserved specimens in museum collections. So we've been working very closely with several museums and actually there are some exquisitely preserved thylacine pouch young joeys, some babies. For those who don't know, the thylacine is another name for the Tasmanian tiger. And what happened once upon a time was when the bounty system was enforced and these mothers were shot in the wild, when they were collected upon inspection, they found that there were baby thylacines in the mother's pouches. And there are only 11 of these things worldwide. And they're distributed throughout various universe, uh, sorry, museum collections. And what we actually were able to do was we were able to go and collect one of these little baby thylacine joeys preserved in ethanol, take a little bit of the tissue and sequence its genome. So sequence its entire genetic blueprint. And while the, the DNA is quite fragmented and it's broken up into lots of little pieces because it is quite old, we were still able to reconstruct it and build the genetic blueprint of this animal, the, the genome. So essentially, dogs and thylacines, because they shared a similar diet and they had similar roles in their ecosystems, they've evolved to be very, very, very similar. The scientific name of the thylacine, Thylacinus cynocephalus, actually means dog-headed pouched dog. Axel, together with a team of other researchers, is studying the genome of the now extinct thylacine to understand how it has evolved to have these canine qualities. So with that, we can then start to do some very sophisticated techniques where we can look at its DNA and we can look at things like dog DNA or, you know, Tasmanian devil DNA and start to determine what regions are unique to the thylacine, what regions are sort of convergently shared or that is that the dog and the, the thylacine sort of evolve these regions independently, but the same regions. And we can also look at regions that differ as well. So it all starts with the genome. And because these things were by purely by chance, collected once upon a time, put immediately into ethanol, it's kept their DNA fairly well intact. So much better than something like, um, you know, a, a dinosaur where it's, you know, these things went extinct 65 million years ago. And there's just no way that we can recover DNA from that. It's just way too, 
too old. Uh, there's four movies that say otherwise. <laughs> I think it's actually five now, but with a six to come, yeah. With a six to come, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like it really, like Jurassic Park was the whole reason I got into this game. Like, I love really? it. I'm such a fan. That's awesome. I love it. Um, it's amazing. Like, you know, watching these movies as a kid, that was what really inspired me to get into sort of genetic engineering and de extinction. But then the more you learn, the more you're like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, but that's a whole nother, whole nother story altogether. But, but then the, the other interesting thing is that you have um, like the woolly mammoth, right? And now that went extinct about 10 to 20,000 years ago. And that is a long time. So that's sufficient time for the DNA to get highly damaged and, and fragmented and broken up into lots of little pieces. However, purely by the virtue of where they lived, being in these Arctic tundras, they find some of these really well-preserved um, specimens that have essentially been on ice for 10, 15, 20,000 years. So that's like having your little DNA sample basically in a freezer, like a natural freezer for such a long time. So there are researchers now that are actually, again, they're getting this DNA and because it's been so well preserved on ice, they're getting pretty good fragments, big chunks of DNA. And when you think about putting a DNA, a genome together, it's like a big, big puzzle, right? And the bigger the pieces, the less pieces, the easier it is to assemble. The more pieces and the smaller, the more difficult it is. So, um, again, we're very, very fortunate that we can start to actually look at the genomes of these far gone species and start to sort of reconstruct what they would have been like. That's cool. <laughs> Told you, isn't that cool? Yeah. 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 No, it's like the coolest thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to stay in your stuff before we jump into full mm. de-extinction stuff. Sure. I really want to go into it fully. but So that's what you did for your entire, most of your PhDs. Were you part of the team that actually mapped out the genome, or is this done before? This You were part of actually look, finding these samples around the world and all that? So a little bit of both. Um, the project was well underway before I started in the lab. Um, the sampling and the DNA extractions were all done before I arrived. But then once we had the genome, it required somebody to effectively look at it sort of with a fine tooth comb and start to pull out some of these regions and then functionally test them. Because, you know, it's all well and good to have two pieces of DNA that look similar, but then what does that mean? How do they function? We don't know. So there are some more um, sophisticated methods that we have to apply to start to look at these so to assemble a genome is a huge task it requires enormous computational power and you have to be a computer whiz it's mm -hmm. a field called bioinformatics i am not one of those people i know my limitations very very well <laughs> so yeah once that's been done by a very clever person then i can start to actually look at the the function of these regions so how similar were they well, or what are they most similar to as you look through it? So they're most similar to their closest really living relative, which is a Tasmanian devil, which is what you'd expect, right? Um, the interesting thing for us is not where they are similar, but where they are different. And when you're looking at the genome, you're looking at about 3 billion base pairs. So 3 billion A's, C's, T's and G's all arranged in complete, you know, chaos, essentially. So trying to, to find these little specific regions that are similar or different is like finding a needle in a haystack. So again, it takes very sophisticated programs and people to do so, but we've had a, a again, this is a team effort. It's not just a single or solo endeavor by any stretch. So we have a really great team of people, each with very unique skill sets that can do these individual um, analyses and, and components. And when you put that together, um, you know, it's just, it's incredible. And that's the power of collaboration in science. Yeah. Cool. So de-extinction uh, is a topic that I'm pretty obsessed with. I think it's one of the more interesting things that is now potentially possible. And it comes from similar to your trajectory into your PhD and studying, you know, DNA. Jurassic Park, I just find to be the most enjoyable, maybe the best movie, one of the best movies of all time. The books are also incredible. Arguably. If you've not read the two books, yeah. read them as soon as possible. They're yep. incredible. And as a person who kind of, in a sense, you look at an animal that's extinct, and now with a genome mapped out, and a relatively, a relative you could potentially put a, well, describe the extinction. That's what I should be saying. I think the best, before I go into that, I think the best thing is just to really make a, a, a distinction between the different kinds. So people kind of get caught up between cloning and de-extinction like they're the same thing. So we can we can clone animals. That's that's something that's been happening for a long time. You know, it started with Dolly the sheep way back when and it's been happening ever since. And 
The difference between cloning and de-extinction is cloning requires a living cell. If you have a living cell, you can take out its nucleus containing all of its genetic content. You can put it into a recipient cell that is also alive, take out that one's nucleus and replace it. Give it a little shock and it'll actually start to divide and it'll start, it'll grow an entire organism, right? So that's with a live cell. Now, the thing about de-extinction is we don't have that. We don't have a live cell. We don't even have a complete like chromosome. We don't have any of that sort of thing. So there are huge, huge technological challenges that are associated with de-extinction. Now, you're absolutely right. Advancement in science and uh, DNA synthesis and all these sort of, you know, once fantasy concepts are actually coming true and very, very quickly for that matter. But if we were to de-extinct an animal, firstly, we would have to have a really, really good map of its genetic blueprint, its genome. Now we've done that with the thylacine. It's not perfect, but it's pretty darn good. And, you know, taking the words from Hammond, you know, you just sort of get the fragmented dinosaur genome and splice it in with a bit of frog DNA and hey presto, you got a dinosaur. So, Wait, so that's what we do. So you guys use well, frog well, DNA well, with the that is that is just insane. I don't know why they did that. Why they didn't use like bird DNA or like you know um, why a frog? Yeah, why a frog, right? And then there were you know all the implications with it. You know, you put in some squid DNA. Now it's got chromatophores and it just goes invisible. And it's like you're an idiot. Why would you do that? That's crazy. Yeah. Like just keep it simple. You yeah. know. But so that's the idea. So we would, if we wanted to de-extinct a thylacine, if we wanted to de-extinct a mammoth. What we would need first and foremost is a, uh, a, a pretty good build of its genome, an understanding of its genetic content. What then would have to happen is we would have to get a living cell, which is the cloning part, right? So we'd have to find a closely related species, one that isn't too distant, that there's been enormous amounts of like differences that have evolved in its DNA. And then we would essentially have to engineer bit by bit the changes from the thylacine into like a Tasmanian devil or like a mammoth into an elephant. And we'd have to do it bit by bit by bit by bit by bit by bit by bit, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Because we're talking about 3 billion base pairs in a genome and probably in the scale of millions, if not, you know, billions of changes. So that in itself is complicated, but it's, now becoming quite routine for us to be able to synthesize large chunks of synthetic DNA. So synthetic in the sense that it's made by us, but it's still made of the same building blocks, the A's, C's, T's and G's. And it used to be that you could only synthesize maybe a hundred at a time or whatever, but now you can start to do thousands. So once we're able to do thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions, now this whole challenge is actually becoming really, really feasible. So we can start to manufacture these artificial genetic strands of DNA and then start to sort of engineer them into these closely related species. Now, would you have a thylacine? No, not by the true sense of the word. You'd have a thylacine-like Tasmanian devil. Or would you have a mammoth? Like, no, you'd have a mammoth-like Asian elephant, right? But... Through time and through like successive changes and manipulations, we can get pretty darn close. But again, this is like a limitation in Jurassic Park, right? It comes back to the same thing. It's like, these are dinosaurs, but they're not dinosaurs. They're like dinosaur-like dinosaurs or like dinosaur-like frogs, maybe. I don't <laughs> know, <laughs> however you want to look at it. But yeah, it, it, so Michael Crichton was actually pretty bang on in when he was theorizing all this stuff, what, like 20 odd years ago, 30 yeah. years ago. Mm. It was pretty. It was the 1980s, yeah. Yeah, he's pretty, pretty close. So, but it's it's amazing. Like it's really no longer science fiction as it is science fact. It's it's happening and it's happening very quickly. Yeah, and it's one of those things I want to dive into CRISPR, but I feel like that may be more of a complicated thing to actually go so, into because that's that's the process. One of the processes right, you're talking right. about. Right. So just to put it simply, CRISPR is a, a method that you can edit the genome. You can take a, a targeted region and you can make a change that you want to do. The problem with CRISPR is that it's very low throughput in the sense that if you want to make it an, an edit, a given edit, you can sort of only do one edit at a time. And again, when we're talking about having to make hundreds of thousands, millions of edits, that doesn't really work. But if they can work out a way to do CRISPR to do hundreds of thousands of edits at once, 
again, now we're looking much more tractable, like this could actually be a thing that happens. It's like three years from now, pretty much. Yeah, about at, that. At the speed in which they're going with it. <laughs> Maybe two and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the funniest thing with all this whole process is I mean, I've done a little bit of research on it and it's just every single time, it's like every year goes by and they're like, you know, yeah, we wanted to see like CRISPR. We, yes, we can do a single animal, change the genome. Mm. That animal's different in some way. Right. And it's like, well, how do we make sure that those genes spread to their offspring? It's like, oh, let's try that. It's like, okay, now that works. Yeah. Like, how do we make sure it doesn't just go to the one offspring, but it actually now goes to the offspring of that offspring, the offspring of that offspring. Right. They try it and it works. And it works. And it's like year to year to year. Advancement, advancement, advancement. It's crazy That's how right. fast it's going. It's like, I think the human genome projects, right? That was the, that was like the one, that yeah. was the one that kicked off this whole genomics era. And the human genome project cost millions of dollars to synthesize, uh, to, sorry, to sequence the human genome. Now it costs maybe about 5,000 bucks to sequence a genome. You can sequence anything. You can sequence your dog's genome if you've got $5,000 lying around. Like, and that was only about 10, 15 years. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's just the advancement and the rapid evolution of the technology for this stuff is just insane. And even remarkably, I've seen it over the course of my PhD. So I, you know, I've only been really in this game properly for about four odd years. And when I first started, it was some of the things that I'm doing now were not tractable. They were too expensive. But now it's just like, hey, yeah, just do it. That's nothing. CRISPR, that is probably going to be a Nobel Prize. Um, it was discovered not that long ago. Kids are doing it in their undergrad degrees now. It's really? become so routine. I just went to a conference and uh, this guy was talking about this CRISPR-like prac that he's implementing for his students. Nobel Prize, you know, no worries, just do it in the classroom. So again, it's the way that these things are, are rapidly increasing is like exponentially. It, it really makes you think like, I could see a Tasmanian tiger before I die. Yeah. Yeah, we were actually talking about that just before in terms of it becomes not a matter of if, but when. when. Truly when, yep. Yeah. And I really hope that I can be part of that. Yeah. And then just, you know, echoing back to Dr. Ian Malcolm, you know, I don't know what the quote is word for word, but just because you could doesn't mean you should. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> life finds a way. Yeah. <laughs> and then just start laughing maniacally into... Well, it is one of those weird, interesting ethical debates we're all going to have in the next decade or so right. about which ones we bring back, how do we bring back, how long ago can the animal be extinct before it's brought back, which countries will end up doing it anyway, yeah. if it's still going to happen pretty much no matter what. But I think it's a very interesting ethical, ethical debate we're going to have in the next few years. It is. And, and one of the most interesting and I think pertinent questions that you just asked then was... Um, which ones, if we could, which ones should we? Which mm -hmm. ones would really, would there not be some sort of harm for? Now, were we to bring back a dinosaur? No, nah, that would not work. That would just be a disaster, right? There's two islands off the coast of Costa Rica. <laughs> say otherwise. But yeah, 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 that's right. That's yeah. right. Tourism would be through the roof. But <laughs> yeah. Then they get out. Well, how do you think Costa Rica's been surviving on ecotourism yeah, yeah, exactly. so far the last like twenty years? Yeah, it's happening. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so yeah, so if you were to if you were to create a T Rex and let it loose in uh, in San Francisco, yeah, not a good idea. But um, <laughs> but um, the the really interesting ones in this debate are the sort of the top three, which is the the thylacine, the mammoth, and the dodo. Now, the dodo was isolated on islands um, really the, like the ecology and the climate and everything it's basically the same so you could probably resurrect that bird drop it back down and it would probably be okay the same goes for the tasmanian tiger it was an apex predator it was the top of its food chain it was probably actually really beneficial in controlling pests and just the native sorry the natural um, way of things and that only went extinct about 80 years ago so again all of that um all of that sort of range where it used to live is still very much intact and all the fauna and flora and everything is still very much the same so if you were to if you were able to recreate one and let it back in its natural environment it would probably be just fine mammoth is a little bit different but also because obviously it was around during the ice age and there was a lot of these arctic tundras but 
Still, if you look up in Canada and Siberia, you still have a lot of these environments where it once thrived. So again, even though it was 10, 15, 20,000 years ago, it probably would be okay. So, you know, when you start to look further beyond the, that though, that's when it becomes a bit of a challenge because then you're talking about a dramatic difference in, in climate, in, you know, geography, ecology, all these different things. So again, a dinosaur, nah, it wouldn't work. But with these other, other species, providing you set up these little safe zones where you could have kind of insurance populations, it would probably be all right. I guess the other thing those three species have in common too is that humans drove them to extinction, right? Right, yeah. right exactly. So it would be interesting, like would the mammoth and the woolly rhino and these other sort of big um, megafauna species still be around today had there been no human interference? Probably not all of them, but I'd say a few of them would still be around. I mean, you wouldn't really want like saber-toothed tigers and stuff running around. That would be a bit of a disaster. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like these areas you're talking about, and that's I think what's the most compelling thing someone was when I was reading about this is that they're like, yeah, it's the tundra. It's like it's kind of nice thing too is the permafrost kind of going away, and it's like mm. they actually survive up there. And there's not really a species that's taken over in the same way that those animals did. Mm. And so you do have yes, you have some free ranging. You have elk and you have you know hooved animals like that, but they're like it's not going to take a niche away from anything else. The niche is still open. And that's kind of the really interesting thing about maybe those could actually work out. Mm, definitely. Well, especially when you look at something like a mammoth, which was a huge grazing herbivore, I'm sure that would have had big benefits to the ecosystem totally. up there. It becomes an interesting question too about what an environment should be like, what we want it to be like, or is there you know, an, an ideal state that it should be in? Mm. And we often look to the past to find how something should be. But, you know, maybe sometimes things have moved on and do we let them move on even if we had a part to play in that? I think that's an interesting argument to have as well that we'll probably be talking about more and more as this goes on. Yeah. It's more about what we want than what actually should exist. Yeah. yeah. For yeah. the most part. Yeah. yeah. And I think as ecologists too, we tend to get caught up in the, yeah, this is how things should be and humans have screwed it all up. But, yeah, maybe, you know, like in Australia, humans have shaped the environment for 50,000 years and that's that's the environment we have now. We're not going back to beyond before human, humans lived in Australia because that's that's shaped the environment we have in terms of fire and all that kind of thing. So Yeah, it, it, that's an interesting one because I think out of all the different continents, like Australia has the highest rate of extinction. Mm. And... But when you look at us geographically, we are not that dispersed. Like we are largely along the coast and we have these little pocket cities and the population is not that large, not compared to somewhere like, you know, the United States where almost every bit of habitable land is habited and even inhabitable land is habited, like, you know, Nevada and these sorts of things. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to sort of the influence that we have and and how that affects the natural order. Yeah, it's a hard one. But yeah. I think definitely like when there's a part that we can play, we should play it. And But we should also know our limits. And again, this comes back to this de-extinction argument. You know, if we can bring back a dinosaur just because we could doesn't mean we should. If we can bring back a thylacine, I genuinely believe that we should. Firstly, because we suck. We got rid of it. It was a tragedy. It was only 80 years ago, so it wasn't that long. And this thing was just such a beautiful animal. It was incredible. You look at this footage, it's, it's truly tear-jerking because it was so unique and so amazing. And, you know, it has this beautiful tan coat with these characteristic stripes and it's dog-like and it was just, yeah, remarkable. So it's such a shame. Yeah. And there's that appeal too. That's why people keep thinking they see it as well. Like I think there's still that almost like, oh, maybe – Maybe it's not gone. Right, it's right. like, no, it's, it's gone. I mean, I'd like to think that maybe, just maybe there is one out there. But the thing is they sort of stretch it a little because if, you know, if you see sightings in Tasmania, firstly, Tasmania is super remote and very, very rugged. And some of the country there, like old thylacine country, is dense, dense woodlands and there's really like nobody living there. So it's very possible that there is some, you know, tiny population still there. So, yeah, when people start to say, oh, I saw one in my backyard in the South Australian hills, you're kind of like, well, it's probably a dog. Yeah, what's more likely? It's more likely. Yeah. yeah. 
Are they running around in Tasmania though? Yeah, maybe. Because it's like, interesting maybe. when you say that too, because like eighty years, that's that's not that's not long. Right. Um, so what movements right now? I know there's a handful of movements around the world of uh, they're trying to de-extinct some of them, and I know that as you mentioned. Potentially, some candidates are woolly mammoth, which I'm sure mm-hmm. there's some research going there. But I believe in the states, there's a very active research going on and trying to bring back the passenger pigeon. That's right. It's yep. another species that obviously was extinct. Very similar time frame. Yeah. yeah. Um, are there any other animals we don't really know about that they're actively trying to do? Not that I'm aware of. Those three really are the sort of posters. Um, the stuff that we're doing, unfortunately, doesn't get a lot of traction um we're still yet to have the project funded so that makes our lives difficult um there is a lot more interest in the woolly mammoth and i know that that is specifically being funded by philanthropic sources there's some i think he's like a russian guy um and he's sort of has this like idea to make this uh like place to stay in park or something like that right yeah where he brings back you know the mammoth and and the woolly rhino and all these sorts of things if he could do that, he would be a gazillionaire. Like that would be the next Disneyland. Um, but yeah, so the fact that there's interest from non-funding sources really gives that a chance. And there are a lot of really, really smart people um, throughout Europe and everything that are working on, you know, uh, synthesizing DNA and all these little things. Like lots of little independent groups working on this this bigger picture stuff. Um, the passenger pigeon, yeah, there's a guy by the name of Ben Novak who's doing some some really good stuff there, and he's mass, yeah, a huge advocate for de-extinction and sort of the morality behind it. So, again, like it's it's such a it's a really interesting subject because a lot of people, whilst they would be interested for it to happen, think that it's kind of a waste of money and resources because it is a lot of effort and a lot of money and a lot of time that could be put into the biggest argument is always like, why would you bring back something that doesn't exist when you could fund in uh, fund uh, conservation of something that's nearly gone, right? So like, instead of throwing all this money into bringing back a dead animal, why don't we put all this money into protecting certain species or setting up these insurance populations or breeding programs and all these kinds of things. And you could argue that that money would go further. Right, Yeah. right. So the thing with us though, is that the research that we do and the de-extinction thing it's not necessarily a targeted approach. Like we can be doing some really great research in other aspects of biology and just general um, advancement of science that can be sort of piggybacked over and, and put into the de-extinction thing. So I do a lot of like molecular biology and DNA, like look at DNA function. So I can do that from so many different aspects, but I can also do it from a thylacine aspect as well. So you know, we're sort of equipped with the ability to to do it, but also focus on other things in parallel. So it, it's really like something that happens in parallel. It's not like, let's put, you know, a big wad of cash towards specifically doing this project. It's like, let's focus on something and gain some knowledge and some insights that'll help that process along. Mm-hmm. And that's how this thing's all happening. It's sort of like a like a big sister to to general scientific research. I also think it's a naive thought that conservationists have that this is the waste of time. If these animals are gone, all that money should be put into preserving, say, you know, the orange bellied parrot or right. the honey eater, the, uh, what is it called? Anyway, an endangered species here, because in reality, a Russian oligarch is not going to spend a hundred million dollars to protect the species. So you gotta, I think you gotta kind of think of them separately as well. Like, right, yes, it's always great. It's not the it same pool good. of money. Yeah. It's not the same pool of money. Mm. These are not necessarily conservationists who want to bring back these species. It could also just be someone who's like, I want to advance science. This is really exciting. I also can potentially make a bit of a profit off of this too. Right. Mm. Like that's why they're doing it. It's not necessarily, not everybody's altruistic and they just want species to survive and everything go back to equal you know, how it is. Yeah, yeah. Some people right. do take advantage of things for money. And so mm. I think it's just a very naive view. Like, no, we should stop that funding because we need our species to survive. So those hundred millions of dollars to go into CRISPR and figuring out this genome, it's like, it's not going to. Yeah, not just gonna it doesn't flip work it. It doesn't that just way. Switch. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Although um, I think you could make the argument that, so I don't know, I feel like there could be a legitimate situation where you're spending money on bringing animals back from the dead and then meanwhile you have animals that are going extinct and they're like, oh, well, we can bring them back now too. And so it becomes yeah, right. like a... 
Yeah. But well, yeah, like you say, it's it's different money and it's different motives and it's it's it's, it's yeah. just different. Like it's it, totally it, different. it truly is. We can get some really, really good knowledge from doing unrelated but related science and then just because we've got it, now we can apply that. And so you don't have to fund de-extinction, you can fund other really great research, but de-extinction sort of gets benefits from that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's not a black and white thing, yeah. it's complicated. I know there's a current project as well that I believe is out of California, but the black-footed ferret? Yep. And so it's the same idea, black-footed ferret, they thought it was extinct. And then they found it was an island population. Yeah. And so they were able to, their attempt was to breed them in captivity and then release them back to the natural areas. And they all instantly died of plague. No. Mm -hmm. And they kept trying it and kept trying it all and just died of plague. Right. And so what they found was that native ferrets, not the black-footed, actually have a resistance to it. So they're like, what if we genetically alter them? Yeah. Mm. And so that's an idea of where using techniques they use for de-extinction, actually, and using CRISPR by altering a living sample, living specimen. It's this whole idea of also using the technology you guys are going in and actually altering an animal and then releasing those ones could be actually a way to benefit existing or extant species so it's like a win-win sort of situation but then you have the big moral dilemma of the fact that people don't like people playing god and this comes back to our whole jurassic park argument yet again it's like just because we could should we and it's like yeah well we probably should but it's again it's complicated but the techniques that we can we can learn from cancer and from um all these other sort of areas of research give us the ability and like the development of CRISPR, for example, that was used for something entirely different, but then that can be piggybacked and that can then go and say, okay, now we have this genuine ecological problem with an actual tangible solution. Let's use that knowledge with a little bit of money and use it in this context instead. And then if it works, two problems solved yeah. effectively. So it's, it's really interesting. And back to that argument of like, should we fund it? It's like, well, you're kind of funding it without knowing, really. So everything has its benefits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the big fear around that things is for people is just the unknown, right? Like it's just, is there going to be some terrible, horrible consequence that we haven't considered? Yeah. That's, that's probably the, the playing God argument, right? Like do we know enough about what we're doing? It is a genuine concern as well. But then the other interesting thing, and coming back to the, the black-footed ferret, right, is you have this you have this bottleneck event, you have this geographically isolated population that really is probably doesn't have a lot of genetic diversity because it doesn't have the ability to withstand the plague like this sister species does, right? So that's the other problem that we have is that if we were to genetically rescue or restore an extinct species, you've essentially got a individual and then every individual that comes from that individual is effectively going to be a clone. So, you know, we might have this population of 100 thylacines running around a meadow and it's beautiful and, you know, awe-inspiring and it's great. And then some, you know, introduced um, pest comes in with and brings a disease and gone. The whole population gone because there's no natural immunity. So the other thing is that if we bring them back, we have to be able to as well engineer in genetic diversity. That sounds such a huge task. It is. So, but really the biggest task is just getting the thing in the first place, right? Yeah. Once you do that, if, if you can make a hundred million changes in a genome, then what's making a few extra to introduce diversity in the grand scheme of things, right? But how, how do you choose diversity? Like, how do you, how would that happen? I don't know. Yeah. There are people that are working on immunity in species. And again, this the, the good example of this is the Tasmanian devil. Like, can you engineer in immunity in resistance for these sorts of things? So, Again, that is a different question. Like it's a different model. It's a different everything. But again, it can be adapted. Should we have that technology? You know, we've been funding all this amazing devil research, which now has broad applications on quolls and thylacines and other things. So again, it's all interconnected and interrelated and, and everything has its benefits. It's just it needs to be, you need to have bright people and bodies that are willing to fund those people to, to make these advancements. Yeah. What would you bring back? Like other than a thylacine? Bring what, back anything? Yeah, bring back anything. I mean, I'm an idiot. I literally just said I, you should never do it, but I'd totally bring back a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I would. I'm, uh, well, actually, no, not even not a dinosaur. I am fascinated, absolutely fascinated by the Archaeopteryx. 
Yeah. That is my all-time favorite. It's like the transition between a full-blown theropod dinosaur and, you know, flight flighted birds. Like it's just it's I love it. It's amazing. So, I think if I could bring back anything, it would be an Archaeopteryx. Wait, like describe that. this. I don't think I know exactly what this looks like. So, it really was it really was like the transition fossil between a proper theropod and uh, and, a, and a bird. Like it had wings, it had feathers, but it had a dinosaur-like skeleton. It had teeth, the whole kit and caboodle. So it was literally like a 50-50 split between the two of them. Yeah, it's like a scary bird with teeth. Like, yeah. It's just crazy. Oh, actually, that's something I could talk about. So there's this guy, right, called Stuart Brand, and he's like a paleontologist. He gave a TED Talk years ago about um, the extinction and the chickenosaurus. It's a great idea. Hear about that? Oh yeah. So there are actually two TED Talks that Axel's referring to here. One was by Stuart Brand that is all about how and why we should bring back species that humans drove to extinction. The other was by Jack Horner, who talked about how to turn a chicken into a dinosaur. Both are fantastic talks. We highly recommend checking those out. So it's like, all right, we're going to make a chickenosaurus. How are we going to do it? There are three things that we have to do. We have to get rid of its beak and replace it with teeth. We have to get rid of its wings and replace it with limbs. And then the third one, I think, was basically reduce its feathers. Like, they're the three things. The third thing was actually getting the chicken to keep a long tail. All very, very interesting. The first thing that he wanted to do was replace the beak with teeth. I'm like, of the three things that you could do, why wouldn't you do that one last? Why would you want a chicken running around trying to bite you? Like, are you mad? Like, what? Like, get rid of get rid of its its feathers first so it can't fly, and then give it limbs again so it's just like a chicken running around, but still completely harmless. Like, yeah, it might peck you, but whatever. Like, don't give it teeth first. That's a horrible idea. I don't know. Anyway. Beaks can do a lot of damage too. Right, right, they can. But if it had little sharp, pointy teeth, oh yeah, no, that's, then... that's stuff of nightmares. Like yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, but again, that was one of those TED talks where I'm like, yeah, I love the extinction. I want to get into this stuff, but I'm like, you probably need to rethink your strategy a little. <laughs> Start with the benign things and then work your way up. What would you bring back, Farley? I mean, the dinosaur dream is impossible, right? The DNA is so fragmented. Do we even have any DNA from dinosaurs, really? No, because it's too old. No, the closest we've got was they once found a fossil that was very well preserved and they actually were able to, I think, pull some red blood cells out of it. Really? Yeah, like it was the the proteins, because their proteins are quite stable. And yeah, this this particularly well-preserved one, I'm pretty sure they found it was either, maybe it wasn't red blood cells, but they found some sort of protein that were like blood-related um, protein. And they actually like were able to look at its sort of structure and everything like that. And that was really, really cool. But that was really the only... Yeah. Because by that point, like you don't longer have soft tissue. You've just got rock. It's just rock, yeah. Because all of it is converted to rock so it's not yeah there's no tissue organization anymore it's just minerals i think a saber-toothed tiger would be awesome that would be cool it'd be very very cool mm-hmm. I think that'd be awesome i also think two other animals i think the ground sloth mm, the giant awesome. ground yes. sloth would be really cool because apparently they were really mean and brutal mm. oh <laughs> uh, that's what i love because they're kind of cause the normal i just like the idea of like being like in Costa Rica and seeing sloths and going up to North America, be like, oh my God, this thing yeah, is horrible. The size of that thing. <laughs> the size of yeah, so they had a skeleton at the La Brea um, tar pits. Do they really? Like, Whoa, it's a big boy. Yeah. Yeah, very, very thick. Yeah. Like, and the yeah. giant wombat. I would like that too. So I probed on. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be really funny. Yep. Australia's so megafauna. It's just. Right. So there so were these much. kangaroos. They were short faced kangaroos. They're called uh, strethuines, maybe, or something like that. And they were snub-nosed, short-faced kangaroos. This was kind of like pre-hopping. So they had these long elongated forelimbs, but instead of like bouncing or hopping along, they'd sort of just like paddle run with these long, long limbs. So you just think this enormous sort of like seven, eight foot tall kangaroo. Oh, and it had like sharp teeth as well. Like, <laughs> not like not like full blown, you know, yeah. like a carnivore teeth, but it still had like remnant canines and these sorts of things. And I just imagine this giant like kangaroo just literally just like running after you, just ah, be amazing. It would be. Yeah. It'd also be terrifying. You guys just want to bring back scary stuff. Well, yeah. Like what's also what's the giant iguana they had here as well? They had an yeah, iguana that was giant, yeah. was larger than like a saltwater crocodile. They had one of those. Oh. And then you also had the hawk 
the eagle in New Zealand that could eat right the ones moas. that actually like took down moas and Maoris and everything yeah so that again was hunted to extinction but yeah. that was a long time ago that was probably a thousand odd years ago because like the whole idea too that no one knows what a moa is a moa is a gigantic bird it's enormous emu yes. basically just a huge emu and like a thick one too there's one in the Teague's museum yeah. uh, massive yeah yeah Imagine riding that thing though. Well, imagine the eagle picking <laughs> like it up. Ostrich racing, but like oh, like yeah. mower racing, like that would be unreal. Yeah. When you think about a lot of the things that humans hunted to extinction, like I think one of my lecturers described it once as like you just picture humans arriving at this new land and then looking around and being like, well, that's got to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that thing's big is going to kill me. We should probably get rid of or it. Like, or like that's going to be delicious. And guess <laughs> what? No fear of us whatsoever. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, that's, I think those are the animals I'd want. I would like a giant bird that could pick up people. I, I'm, I love, like, I'm obviously you, you're, you guys are the bird people, but I love birds and the Archaeopteryx in particular. But yeah, those big, I love eagles. They're my favorite. Mm. And just those big eagles with like wingspans of, you know, three, four meters, almost like enormous condors, but raptors. Yeah. Like top of the pecking order, if you pardon the pun. But yeah, yeah truly like birds will outlive us all. I'm really curious. I'm curious to see what gets approved because it'd be very. I know it's going to happen. We're going to have the technology to do it. I'm just always curious which ones will be approved because that's the thing. It's like it's going to happen, but which animals will have it happen to it? Is it just going to be a full zoo? Where we're going to have all these different zoos with all these weird animals. Mm. You can go to Cincinnati and you can see the clone or close to a clone of the last passenger pigeon. Like mm. that idea. Like you can go to the same zoo the last one lived at. And you can have the, there's an aviary now dedicated to mm. them. Or is it going to be, we're going to start releasing them into the wild? Well, that's the thing about the passenger pigeon. You sort of have to. Like, they're not like domestic pigeons. Like, they were birds that would fly for hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. Like, you couldn't keep it in an aviary. Like, even if you could, even if you could make one, it would almost be bad to the animal because you're not respecting its ecology in that regard. Like, you're creating something for the sake of creating it with no intention of letting it be it. Well, yeah, but they have, no they have no rights, though. That's the whole thing, right? So it's the idea that's, I mean, that's the one, one of the realities, one of the things that Jurassic Park got to really well is that, as you said, they're not really dinosaurs, mm. but also the fact that it's like, they're not rights. They're just genetically modified organisms that right. were created in a lab. Their rights belong to the person that created exactly. them. Exactly. They're mm. all trademarked. Well, hence all the new <laughs> ones and why they're like weaponizing them. Exactly. Because like if you own the IP, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want to it. So it doesn't mm. get the same rights as a wild animal. It'd be more of like an invasive species. Like it's not kind protected of. at all. Mm. Yeah. So one of the other major um, technological sort of problems that we need to overcome with the, with the de-extinction angle is that you need to have a, a decent surrogate. So for example, if you were to create a mammoth, which is about two times the size of an elephant, if you were to get that mammoth embryo, if you were to change the elephant um, egg and swap in all the mammoth parts, and you were then to put that embryo uh, or that egg into an Asian elephant, which is closest living relative, how would that then grow? Like would the mammoth just outgrow the elephant or that's something that we know very, very little about. So whether the sort of the maternal um, care or the, the maternal sort of features of the elephant will constrict the size of the mammoth or whether the mammoth will just grow too large. So one thing that has to be done is almost like an artificial womb. Mm -hmm. So, and there are actually groups that are working specifically on that problem. Like there's a guy by the name of George Church who's doing a lot of the stuff with the synthetic DNA. And one of his I guess projects or one of his collaborations is to develop an artificial womb specifically designed to house a mammoth embryo oh throughout its development. So that's the other thing. One of the biggest problems with the thylacine or any marsupials in general is their mode of development. So placental mammals, um, as they're as they're called, eutherian mammals like us. You know, we uh, we have a baby. It grows inside of us. When it's ready to be born in a relatively sort of, you know, developed state, it's born and then it's semi-independent. It has to sort of suckle for a little bit longer to grow a bit bigger, but then it's kind of free to go. Marsupials, on the other hand, they're born like a little tiny jelly bean. Like these things, it's called altricial. They're highly underdeveloped. They're basically just a pair of arms and a mouth because when they're born, they have to crawl from the mother's birth canal into the pouch when they arrive in the pouch, they have to suckle or attach to the teeth and suckle, and then they continue their development, hence the whole thylacine, why we um, sometimes get these pouch young for the DNA. 
So if that's the case, if we were to recreate a thylacine, we would have to implant that into a mother and then it would be born in this underdeveloped state. What animal do we then put it in? So if we were to put it in a Tasmanian devil, which again is about half of its size, so similar to this elephant question, is that would it just outgrow its mother's pouch? Would it just be too difficult for it to do that? Can we create some sort of artificial pouch where this thing will develop? What's the influence of the like the maternal, you know, instincts? Like how are these behaviors taught to the young? Like there are just so many unknowns. So that completely, you know, confounds and and, and just amplifies the difficulty of this whole entire process. Because even if we can genetically engineer this thing, de-extinct this animal, create a living entity, can we then nurture that through to juvenile or adulthood? So that's a massive implication as well. But again, there are people dedicated to this question and specifically working on this problem, but not from a marsupial perspective. So I think there's a lot more likelihood of it happening in a mammoth because there are people genuinely working towards this. But if we could do it to a thylacine, we just don't know what to do. We couldn't, like we, we could try, we could put it into, or maybe you put it into like a wallaby, for example, or like a kangaroo, which are quite large, but then will the thylacine genetically, it would be similar, but behaviorally, will it be similar? It's just, it's really, it's yeah. a super complicated thing. So it's really interesting. Yeah, there are, there are many, many boundaries that we have to overcome um, but again, I, I firmly believe that this is something that we could see within our lifetime. But no, it'll be, it'll be very interesting. I think it's like, maybe the good thing about marsupials, though, is that they are so little. And then once they get to a certain point, you could remove them and then just raise them in captivity. And rear them. And yeah. Them. Well, it would be interesting, again, going back to this, um, this idea of similar ecological overlap. Like, would the best way to sort of teach these behaviors to be hand rear it to a point of independence or semi-independence and then put it with a litter of puppies. Yeah, totally. And then even though, you know, it's not a it's not a dog by any stretch, it would at least begin to learn these sort of hunting-like behaviors. And then you kind of establish that as the first generation. Yeah. And then if it's viable and able to reproduce itself, well, that is then granted that it there was another one. Obviously, that's the other thing. You can't just make one. You have to make two or... Yeah. Or whatever, um, and then and then would that sort of just self-propagate? Like, would there that behavioural, would that inert sort of um, behaviour, genetic programming kick in, and then they sort of carry on their own course? Who knows? That is a big, big, big black box. No one's got no idea, any idea of of what would happen, really. Yeah, but still cool. Very cool. How do you decide to release these multi-million-dollar creatures to be like? Hopefully the farmers don't shoot them. Yeah. Hopefully they don't get cold and die one night from some weird disease we didn't predict. Hopefully they don't bite a electrical wire. Hopefully they don't eat the wrong fish and buy poison. Hopefully they don't eat a cane toad. There's all these factors where it's like, how will someone finally justify releasing this thing? It was good. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Oh. It was good fun. Thank you again so much for listening. And thank you to Dr. Axel Newton for the interview. Don't forget... You can support this podcast on Patreon. We have an account there. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. Just look for Animalia Podcast. And as always, please leave us a review if you have the time. Also, let us know what you think. Would you want to de-extinct a species? And if so, which one would you choose? Thanks, guys. Bye. Life uh, finds a way. <laughs> I just really love the idea of pigeons diversifying and like every new animal is a kind of pigeon. Like pigeons. Yeah, that would be amazing. Hunting pigeons and yeah, like underground pigeons. Imagine that, you just have this. And the podcast is hosted by Annie Allsbrook and Farley Connolly with occasional interjections by me, the sound engineer, David Roker. Our logo is designed by Osvaldo Franklin Yo, and all original music is by Sean Pratt.